welcome to episode 44 of Silver Screeners. I'm your host, Frank, vocally coming through your device from Massachusetts. Thank you, as always, for clicking that little triangle that points to the right to give this a listen. If this is your first time tuning in, then welcome. And if you've listened before, then thank you for coming back. This show is all in the name of love for the cinema, past, present, and future. But over the past couple of months, I've been doing a special series on Oscar-winning and nominated films that'll hopefully get you geared up for the Oscar season that is right now totally in full swing. It's Sunday, March 13th as of this recording, so the Oscars telecast is now a mere two weeks away. At this point, I've seen six of the ten Best Picture nominees, including Coda, Nightmare Alley, West Side Story, Dune, Licorice Pizza, and Don't Look Up. So that leaves four nominees wondering, yo, Frank, where the hell you at? King Richard, Belfast, Power of the Dog, and Drive My Car. Still got time before I collect 63 research papers on Lord of the Flies for my grade 12 crowd and a batch for my grade 11 on A Raisin in the Sun, because I know how to patty. As for this episode, we're continuing to look back at Oscars of the past. We began a few episodes ago with 1976 as the launching point, 45 years ago, meaning the Oscars that aired that year in early 77. And with each episode in this limited Academy Awards series, we've leaped ahead every five years. 76, 81, 86, and so on. And now, we're exploring the Oscar season of 2011, or early 2012, if you go by when they were actually shown on TV. And if you're saying to yourself, Damn, old movies, bring it on! Then all the power to you. But if you're saying to yourself, Damn, old movies? No! Then respectfully, could I suggest that we all call to mind the words of actress Lauren Bacall. It's not an old movie, if you haven't seen it. So like I said, we're reaching the end of the run of these Oscar-themed episodes before Silver Screeners goes in a different direction. But until then, you all still have a hand in deciding which films get featured. In addition to the Oscar-winning film of the year, that would be The Artist, I post a poll on my socials at the beginning of each week with the names of the other nominated films to find out which one you're most interested in. This time around, it looks like most of the love went to Hugo, though the help came in at a wicked close second. Difference of one vote. So as I've been doing, in the interest of pleasing everybody, you'll get a bonus fun fact for each of this year's nominated pictures. And I'll throw in more than one bonus fun fact for the help, because, hey, what the hell. So thanks for your votes, or if you haven't voted, you still get another shot at it for next time. And that said, as always, we'll begin with spoiler-free plot setups, the premise of both The Artist and Hugo. Then the spoiler alert as we go into some of the behind-the-scenes fun facts for both, as well as those bonus ones I just mentioned for the other nominees, which were The Help, Tree of Life, War Horse, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, The Descendants, Midnight in Paris, and Moneyball. Then comes the segment called The Good, The Bad, and The Outrageous, one or two memorable moments from that year's Oscar ceremony. Then comes the trivia segment involving all of you listeners. And finally, The Big Finish, a preview of the next episode's poll options, the next batch of films for you to choose from for the year 2016. So rewind 10 years back to Sunday, February 26, 2012, as the 2011 Oscar winners were announced throughout the evening. The New York Giants had just beaten the New England Patriots in the Super Bowl, their second victory over Tom Brady and the Pats in five years. The music world was reeling from the recent death of pop superstar Whitney Houston just that month. Washington State became the seventh state to legalize same-sex marriage, and Queen Elizabeth II became only the second person to celebrate 60 years of being a British monarch. In other words, it's time now for the spoiler-free plot setups. Ah, 
the risk of coming across like a pretentious twit. Both Hugo and Viatis, which by the way did get Best Picture, they're great companion pieces if you want a crash course in the history of the movies and of cinema in general. Hugo is 95% fiction, but it does have some historically accurate references sort of woven throughout, in particular a flashback sequence that we'll get into. The artist is 100% fiction, but it's real enough in terms of the characters and the story that were conjured up in the imagination of screenwriter and director Michel Hazanavichus. I think I hope I pronounced that correctly. The artist, starring Jean Dujardin in his Best Leading Actor Oscar-winning role as George Valentine, as well as Berenice Bejo as Pepe Miller, John Goodman, Penelope Ann Miller, and James Cromwell. The Oscar-winning direction is by Michel Hazanavichus. In addition to picture, leading actor, and director, the artist also won for musical score and costume design. Nominations also went to Bejo for supporting actress, the art direction, cinematography, and two more for Hazanavicius for editing, which he shared with Anne-Sophie Bayon and original screenplay. Academy Awards history really came full circle this year, with Best Picture going to this one, the first silent movie to prevail since the Academy's first year back in the late 20s. The Artist is a film that is totally in love with film history, and that's a good thing. It's fiction, but everything that goes on in the story parallels the troubles that God knows how many silent movie careers encountered. The main character is George Valentine, a fictional character in 1927, naive, pretty arrogant, full of himself, no instinct for the future because he doesn't want to or he's unable to transition into talking pictures. The artist actually opens with a scene from a fictional film that George stars in. It sort of hits you over the head with a double meaning. I mean, Kanye is more subtle with the Grammys. A close-up of his face shows him screaming as he's being tortured with electricity. The title card lets us know that what he's screaming is, I won't talk, I won't say a word. Rather symbolic, wouldn't you say? A few shots later, his tormentors silently yell, Speak! Lo, the brave and stubborn soul doesn't. Then we can see that it's a movie he's in. There's an audience at one of those early movie palaces, as they were called at the time, the higher-end theaters. The audience is staring at the screen, drawn to gorgeous George like Mariah Carey to a mirror. Meanwhile, he's standing behind the screen underneath a sign that says, Please be silent behind the screen. Get it? He's nervous, but self-absorbed at the same time, trying to feel out the audience's reaction, but he's got no reason to worry. They love him. His movie ends, he leaps onto the stage with false modesty that would make James Cameron blush. His female co-star is in the wings waiting for him to bring her onto the stage with him so she can share the audience's love. But instead, he brings out his canine co-star, the dog named Uggy, and has him do a few tricks to the delight of the audience. Outside the theater, the screaming fans are being held back by security as George is flexing his muscles. Keep in mind, he's fully dressed in a tuxedo, by the way. One fan in particular is a young woman who drops her wallet just in front of the cop who's holding her back from leaping on George like white on rice. She has to step in front of him to reach it and bend over to pick it up. And she conveniently ass bumps George, who turns around to see who it is. He mugs for the camera with her. She's enjoying the attention, and as we see almost immediately after, she's an aspiring actress herself. The paparazzi's totally eating all of this up, snapping pictures of her kissing him on the cheek. That makes the front page of Variety the next day with the headline, Who's That Girl? And guess who's reading Variety at the table as George and Uggy come over and take their seats? You're right, it's George's wife who's totally fed up with his bullshit. He gives her pouty puppy dog eyes to try to quell the flames, and you just know that this is his usual M.O. when he knows that he's screwed up royally. Meanwhile, that young fan who had dropped her wallet, her name is Peppy Miller, 
She's taking advantage of her newfound 15 minutes of fame. She shows up at the studio, does a little dance number at an open audition, gleefully announces her name. They like what they see, and like it has wings, her acting career takes off. She embraces the idea of talking in pictures. She's a sensation. In George, she just feels like he fell through the looking glass as his career plummets. He refuses to speak on screen. He sees no future in it. He doesn't want to fix what ain't broke. And basically keeps playing chess while everyone around him is playing checkers. If you've seen Sunset Boulevard, or if you've seen Singing in the Rain, or A Star is Born, you can cherry-pick plot elements from all three of those films, put them in a bag, shake it up a few times, open it, out comes the artist. And I mean that in the best possible sense, because, yeah, it's black and white, yeah, it's silent, but I'm cool with that. And let me tell you this, when it first came out, I can remember seeing it at a local independent movie theater near me, right outside of Boston. It's a building that's over a century old. Used to be a Nickelodeon, in fact, and it's unfortunately not doing so well since the pandemic. They've said on their Facebook page that they're struggling to stay financially solvent, so fingers, toes, arms, and eyes crossed for them. The Dedham Community Theater looked them up. D-E-D-H-A-M. So I saw the artist there, and I was there like, whoa, <laughs> okay, field trip. I teach a film class, and that particular semester, we took a field trip for a special screening of the artist. I can remember I gave them a bulleted list of discussion prompts ahead of time. They just finished learning about the transition from silent films to talkies, so this was capturing the proverbial lightning in the bottle. I mean, talk about fortuitous timing. They came out of the theater after it was over, and I specifically remember one girl grinning like she had a watermelon rind stuck in her jaw, raving about how much she loved it. One of the most subdued guys in the class was smiling and saying to a friend of his, that was actually pretty good. I had them make Animoto videos as a follow-up project, and some of them were actually not half bad. Speaking of not half bad, let's pivot towards another 2011 film that pays its respects to the film industry of yesteryear, Hugo, based on the 2007 book The Invention of Hugo Cabret by Brian Selznick and directed by Martin Scorsese. It premiered at the New York Film Festival in October of 2011 before opening nationwide in the U.S. and Canada on November 23rd and the U.K., Ireland, Turkey, France, and Belgium throughout December. It stars Asia Butterfield as Hugo Cabaret, a young orphan in 1931. The opening shot of the film is an aerial image of the city of Paris at nighttime, a light snowfall. I may as well be honest and say that even if you're watching this film on a DVD or streaming, you're conscious of the fact that it was released in theaters in 3D. At first glance, it looks like a time-lapse shot, but it's not. In fact, it's pretty animated, literally. The camera glides into the entrance of a train station, through the whole open area, up to a big-ass clock looking down at all of the commuters, comes to a stop at the number four on the clock's face. And through the four-shaped opening, staring from the inside looking out, is young Hugo himself. He looks up fearfully at the station inspector, played by Borat himself, Sasha Baron Cohen. The inspector's got a watchdog with him. And it's apparent that this kid hiding behind number four is not supposed to be where he is. Maybe he's supposed to be behind number eight, I don't know. He proceeds to run around inside the wall behind this clock. Down stairwells, across iron mesh platforms, past all of the gadgetry that keeps the clock running. The whole set is a production designer's fantasy project, honestly. Hugo looks back out through the clock, and there's a dissolve to an older man down below in the station sitting behind the counter of a magic shop, resting his chin in his hand, looking resigned and, and bitter. He winds up a little toy mouse and watches it go across the counter, just as a young girl around Hugo's age comes up from behind the man. They exchange looks and pantomime a conversation that Hugo, of course, can't hear from way up where he is. It's no spoiler to say that the old man is her grandfather. She calls him Papa George. He's played by Academy Award winner Ben Kingsley. He got leading actor for 1982's Gandhi. 
He's been nominated three more times since, including supporting actor for a small indie film called Sexy Beast. So Sexy Beast is sitting in this magic shop, not appearing to be doing much with his time. The young girl is his granddaughter, Isabel, played by Chloe Grace Moretz, probably best known at the time for Diary of a Wimpy Kid, Kick-Ass 1 and 2, and she would go on to do the remake of Carrie, as well as the remake of Suspiria. She lives with him and her grandmother, Mama Jean, played by the late Helen McCrory, who played Tony Blair's wife, Cherie, in 2006's The Queen, which we looked at last time. Please check out episode 43, if you haven't yet, for The Queen and Little Miss Sunshine. Little shameless plug. Anyway... Mrs. Sexy Beast was also Draco Malfoy's mother in the Harry Potter films, and of course, Aunt Polly in the Netflix series Peaky Blinders. So Hugo climbs out of the clock and makes his way down to the center of the station. He sees that Sexy Beast is nodding off and decides to make his way gently, but oh so very gently, to the counter so that he can pilfer that little toy mouse. Look it, I'm no thief, and I do not encourage anyone to be one, but if this kid's gonna steal... He may as well make it something valuable instead of this gimmicky wind-up rodent, but everyone's entitled to low standards, I guess. But alas, he is not meant to walk off with his hoped-for loot. Just as he is about to grab it, he is grabbed. The man's wide awake, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and ready to reel this kid in to chew him up and spit him out. He's got his hands in his clutches, and he growls, Got you at last. Not the first time you've stolen from me, is it? Empty your pockets, or I'll call the station inspector. One of the items in Hugo's pocket is a small notebook filled with drawings, sketches of gadgets, and it's all annotated. In a series of images of a robot, or as it's called in the film, an automaton. It's in the style of a cartoon flipbook, so the man flips the pages of this notebook. He watches the automaton seem to turn and face him. For reasons unknown as yet, he recognizes it. So he hollers at Hugo, Hey, where'd you get this? Who drew these? Hugo does not tell him, and the man yells at him to get the hell out of there. The station inspector and his dog, Maximilian, inexplicably are the only two to react to the sounds of an old man shouting. And the pooch, who will not rest until he gets a taste of Hugo's blood, makes his presence known. And Hugo, no dummy, thinks to himself, Run. As the inspector follows the dog, who's following Hugo, while a small group of musicians chirpily plays some music for the passers-by in the midst of all this chaos. So who drew those pictures? Who is Sexy Beast? Why does he recognize the automaton? Will he fall back asleep? Will you fall asleep? And what about Isabel? For the answers to these and other questions, sit tight, because as far as spoiler-free comments go, they're stopping here, eight minutes into the film. All right, so let's pull all this together. To really appreciate what both the artist and Hugo are doing, there's got to be a little background context of just what the hell is going on with both of these stories. So let me try to give you the Reader's Digest version of the early days of cinema here as best I can. All right. No one can really say when or where a specific innovator or team of visionaries quote-unquote invented the movies. Lots of creative, entrepreneurial minds, some showbiz folks, some scientists, even some accused crooks and murderers from all over the world contributed to the idea of total strangers sitting next to each other in a darkened theater to watch larger-than-life images projected onto a wall or a screen in front of them. The year is 1872, not even a full decade since the American Civil War ended, and out in California, a railroad tycoon and former governor of California named Leland Stanford, he was a financial investor in the first transcontinental railroad in the U.S. He was all wigged out from the stressful experience, so his doctor suggested some relaxing outdoor activities, like breeding horses. So now Stanford is into horse racing, and one day he's in the middle of a random conversation with a friend. 
You ever have one of those things? You look back on a phone call or a video chat that you have with a friend and you're thinking to yourself, wow, how the hell did we get on that tangent? Anyway, in their case, they were having a polite disagree. The friend was saying that when a horse gallops, there's always at least one hoof on the ground. Stanford was there like, nah, it's airborne at one point for a split second. Only one way to settle this. Like any of us would, they allegedly shook hands on a $25,000 bet. And keep in mind, this was in 1872 dollars. So that shit comes out to $532,064.89 in 2022. Stanford hired an eccentric photographer, Edward Mybridge, to take pictures of his racing horse to see if he could capture at least one image that would prove him right. But it would take a few years to come up with a short plan. During those years, Mybridge was briefly, shall we say, distracted when his young wife became pregnant by her lover. So Mybridge, shot and killed this dude, went on trial, and was found not guilty by reason of justifiable homicide. He then went into a self-imposed year-long exile in Central America. Because again, who hasn't? And here it comes, the moment you've been waiting for. Six years after the bet was made, 1878, Stanford invited the press to his racehorse track on his California estate. Mybridge took 12 separate cameras, lined them up alongside the track. Attached to each camera was a string that was pulled across the horse's path. So the horse galloped around the track, broke through each string, which yanked on the shutter button of the camera, snapped a photo. All 12 photos were taken in less than half a second. After developing them, Mybridge scanned the pictures in sequence and goes, you know, if you squint your eyes and have a good imagination, it almost looks like the horse is moving. The illusion of movement, like a cartoon flipbook, an early version of a film strip. Turns out, Mybridge was also a traveling showman, and as owner of these photos, he now had a new attraction to include in his act. He attached the photos to a cylinder-shaped object with a light inside of it and projected the images onto a wall or a curtain or something. He would spin the cylinder, the pictures looked like they were moving, and audiences got an adrenaline rush. Eleven years later, 1888, Mybridge took his show to New Jersey, where he crossed paths with Thomas Alva Edison. Edison was intrigued, and he took things to the next level with flexible celluloid film strips, as well as the first movie studio, which was nothing more than a hot cramped shack called the Black Mariah. That's where Edison would film little snippets of really nonsensical things, like two people kissing or Annie Oakley shooting some cans. But while this was going on, over in Europe, there was this inventor named Louis-Augustin Le Prince, who was working on what we'd eventually call a projector. In his workshop in Leeds, England, Le Prince was all set to patent it. He boarded a train in France heading for Paris. This was around 1899. He was supposed to meet with his patent agents there and then sail to New York City. He never got there. The train pulled in. He, his business papers, and his luggage all vanished without a trace. Detectives from three different countries conducted a search. No results. He was never seen again. It's still an unsolved mystery, but his widow was convinced that Edison was somehow behind it. With Edison's reputation for deceit and intimidation and his questionable business practices, as well as his claims after Le Prince's disappearance that he himself invented the motion picture camera, maybe a convincing argument could be made that he was somehow involved. I mean, who knows? Either way, Edison laughed his way to the bank. But there were two more people over in France that have had of all of this, and that is where Hugo comes in. So in France, two brothers, 
Auguste and Louis Lumiere, entrepreneurs, they saw Edison's stuff and thought, what if we projected moving images onto a large screen in a darkened room for a paying audience? They one-upped Edison's technology and came up with what was called the cinematograph, which was a portable, hand-cranked camera and projector. Then, in December 1895, the Lumiere brothers birthed the movies, at least as we know them today. For 30 minutes, they screened nine short films in the rented basement of a Paris cafe to a paying audience the very first time in human history anything like this ever happened. The nine films themselves were the Lumiere family's own home movies. No storylines, no plots, no professional actors, just brief little snippets of French middle-class life at the end of the 19th century. And two of the films they screened that night are seen in Hugo. Workers leaving the Lumiere factory and arrival of a train. But after a couple of years of this, the Lumiere brothers decided to move on to other things. They kept producing films under their name, but they hired others to direct. Like Georges Méliès, the very guy that Sexy Beast plays in Hugo. He was a stage magician, an illusionist, a showman in every sense of the word. In 1902, he began directing cinema's first science fiction fantasy film, A Trip to the Moon, which factors heavily into the plot of Hugo. The premise is that a team of scientists decide to fly a rocket to the moon for exploration. They all pile into the rocket ship, complete with a happy chorus line of ladies seeing them off. The movie was a wicked profitable sensation. Soon more films like it were made. The world's first Nickelodeon opened up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And for the next 25 years, give or take, the silent movie era was in full swing. So in a flashback sequence in Hugo, Sexy Beast pretty much relays all of this. So Melies and the Lumiere brothers, they get the cinematic treatment Scorsese style. Until the mid-1920s, films were silent. And this is where the artist comes in. And where Hugo leaves off, the artist gets past the torch and runs with it. Edison had previously tried but failed to get synchronous sound going early on in the game. But by 1926, a film version of Don Juan featured a pre-recorded musical score and sound effects during a sword fight sequence. You can find it on YouTube easily. In fact, you can find Arrival of a Train, Workers Leaving the Lumiere Factory, and A Trip to the Moon on YouTube as well. So Don Juan had pre-recorded music and sound effects. Four studio executives who happened to be brothers, their names were Albert, Harry, Sam, and Jack. The Warner Brothers, they were financially struggling to stay above water, so Sam figured, you know what, what the hell, go big or go home. He pushed for them to invest in sound technology after seeing the favorable audience reaction to Don Juan. Harry, brother Harry, was not on board. He was quoted as saying, who the hell wants to hear actors talk? Apparently moviegoers did, Harry, because the jazz singer came out in October of 1927, the first movie that contained talking, and its popularity was the death knell for silent pictures. The talkies have spoken, literally. And that's where George Valentine's story is the new platoon in the cinematic battlefield. Silent movie actors like this fictional guy were not used to quiet on the set while performing. Most were not theatrically trained. And they were all facing the same question of, how do I sound? If they had speech impediments, if they spoke broken English, if hathrobs like Rudolph Valentino didn't have voices that matched their silent charisma, or if they were just plain stubborn little bastards like Valentine who refused to keep up with the changing times, then forget it. I give you silent film comedian Charlie Chaplin, who said to the press in 1931, four years into talkies, quote, I give the talkies six months more, at the most a year, then they're done, end quote. Sorry, Chuck, but uh, nope, thanks for playing.
And it's now time for the behind the scenes fun facts. So proceed with the knowledge that details from both movies, including plot spoilers and the endings, are going to come fast and furious. So spoiler alert now. Let's say we look at the artist first. Number five. According to Berenice Bejo on The Ellen DeGeneres Show, Uggy the dog, who had a number of scenes running down sidewalks and into the streets, including the scene where he rescues George from the house fire, he was kept nice and safe. Jean Dujardin had sausages in his pockets while filming their scenes together, so that the little pooch would be sure to follow him around. Number four. Berenice Bejo in real life is married to the writer and director. She insisted that it had nothing to do with her being cast. She was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, but the Oscar went instead to Octavia Spencer for the help. But their home does have a nice shiny Oscar on their mantle as he got Best Director. They reteamed again for 2014's The Search and 2017's Goddard Monomore. Then she would star in 2017's To the Top, which was written and directed by Serge Hazanovicius, Michelle's older brother, her brother-in-law. Number three. Peppy Miller's house in the film. That is the actual house of silent film phenomenon Mary Pickford. The bed that George wakes up in when he hits rock bottom, that's Mary Pickford's real bed. The irony is that Mary Pickford's career became roadkill with the rise of talkies, while Peppy's got Peppy. Number two. As for the rousing tap dance sequence that ends the film on a high note, Jean Dujardin and Berenice Bejo busted their cocks to get it right since neither one of them actually dances. He said, and I quote, I am no dancer. I can speak English better than I dance, and my English is atrocious. End quote. They rehearsed for five months to get that thing nailed. And number one. The very first Best Picture winner, a category that at the time was actually called Outstanding Picture, was a World War I drama called Wings. Only silent movies were eligible for consideration for the first Oscars, and Wings got two. Outstanding Picture and a category at the time called Best Effects Slash Engineering Effects. The Artist is the first ever silent film to win Oscars for Best Picture, Director, Musical Score, Costumes, and Leading Actor. And as far as Hugo goes, let's see what's behind that clock. Number five. Brian Selznick, the author of the original book, was not directly involved in the production of the film, but Scorsese did use his illustrations from it as storyboards. Selznick said, and I quote, The camera is doing what my pictures are doing. At the beginning of the movie, when the camera swoops through the train station, up to the clock face, with Hugo looking at the number, I drew all that. End quote. Number four. The automaton in the movie that Hugo so determines to fix actually does draw the image of the rocket landing in the eye of the man of the moon from a trip to the moon. It just takes about 46, 47 minutes, that's all, according to Dick George, the guy who made it for the film. George said that the movie uses, quote, a computer-controlled system that drives the mechanism under the table, but the hand is connected to the mechanism via a series of magnets. Obviously, it's impractical for them to film the whole drawing sequence purely and simply because that would be two-thirds of the length of the film and the audience would be asleep. But in reality, it does draw the whole drawing from start to finish, end quote. Number three. The first film Martin Scorsese ever saw was Duel in the Sun, the 1946 western that was produced by Hollywood heavyweight David O. Selznick, who did King Kong and Gone with the Wind. David O. Selznick happens to be a cousin of Brian Selznick's grandfather. 
don't, don't ask me what that makes them. Something X number of times removed. I don't know. Number two. I've been to England a couple of times, most recently in 2018. I love that place. It's always inexplicably felt like home to me. The running joke between my wife and my kids and me is that I must have lived there in my former life. We stepped foot on British soil, Dover, Canterbury, Kent, and London, and I was there like, I'm home. Like, really, home. Like Dorothy's back in Kansas home. Hey, I'm American, Massachusetts born and bred and damn proud of it, damn it. But this UK thing has confused me for decades. Anywho, as if I needed another reason to feel an affinity for the UK, most of the filming of Hugo was done not in Paris where it's set, but in, yep, England at the Shepperton Studios. Scorsese brought on a researcher named Marianne Bauer who looked at historical photos, films, and documents in order to make the sets as authentic as possible. And number one. Scorsese had the cast and crew do their homework for this 3D piece of historical fiction. They watched not only 3D classics like House of Wax with Vincent Price and Hitchcock's Dial M for Murder, but also movies from the 1930s, which is when Hugo is set. Sasha Baron Cohen watched some Charlie Chaplin stuff, while Ben Kingsley, it stands to reason, watched hours of those films of Georges Méliès that managed to survive. And as promised, I have fun facts for the other Best Picture nominees of 2011 as well. For Moneyball. Chris Pratt, who plays Oakland Athletics' first baseman and catcher, was initially turned down for being overweight. He was hell-bent on getting cast, so he shed the pounds, got himself a workout regiment, haunted the producers with check-ins to see if the role was still open. Eventually, he sent them a photo of himself, and he landed the role. For the Tree of Life. If you Google Tree of Life fun facts, you'll get results for the attraction at Animal Kingdom in Disney World in Florida. So be sure to include 2011 film in your search. For Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, Thomas Horn, who plays the young son of Tom Hanks and Sandra Bullock, he was discovered by the film's producer, Scott Rudin, after winning over $31,000 in a Kids Week episode of the TV game show Jeopardy. For War Horse, it was inspired by a 1982 book of the same name by Michael Morpurgo, M-O-R-P-U-I-G-O, as well as a 2007 stage adaptation of the same name. But unlike the movie, the novel tells the story from the horse's point of view. For the descendants, the family in the film lives on the island of Oahu. But when George Clooney's character introduces himself and his family, he mentions that he travels to Maui for business. His daughter Alex attends a boarding school on the island called Hawaii, which is also known as the Big Island. In reality, it's usually the other way around. According to ScreenRant.com, quote, Oahu is by far the most populous island in the state, home to about a million of the state's total 1.4 million residents, end quote. Which means that most businesses, like law practices, schools, they're in Oahu. For Midnight in Paris, the love was thrown France's way. Not only was Midnight in Paris the opening film at the 2011 Cannes Film Festival, but Carla Bruni, the former First Lady of France, cameos as the museum guide. And finally, for the help. Seeing as how it just missed being this episode's other featured film, I have three for you. First, growing up in Jackson, Mississippi in the 1970s, both the director, Tate Taylor, and the book's author, Catherine Stockett, had maids. Both of them referred to their maids as, quote, co-mothers, end quote. These co-mothers cared for them. Tate Taylor's co-mother, Carol Lee, has a small role in the film. 
Second, Octavia Spencer, who won Best Supporting Actress for playing Minnie, and the director, Tate Taylor, they had been friends for years, and they were actually roommates in Los Angeles for four years. And third, one of the film's producers, Brunson Green, also from Jackson, Mississippi, he's also a longtime friend of both Tate Taylor and Octavia Spencer. The three of them used to hang out together occasionally with Catherine Stockett, the author of the book. And with that, let's head over to the good, the bad, and the outrageous. The good, the bad, and the outrageous, all according to Oscars.org, the official site of the Academy Awards, so you know that this information is credible. Brett McKenzie received the best original song for Man or Muppet from the movie called The Muppets, the hit reboot of the beloved franchise. In his acceptance speech, he said that he grew up in New Zealand watching The Muppets on TV and was genuinely starstruck when he met Kermit the Frog, but that once you got to know him, he's just a normal frog. And like many stars there at the Oscars that night, Kermit's a lot shorter in real life. Also, this was Billy Crystal's ninth time hosting the Oscars. In his opening monologue, he dinged everyone there when he said, quote, Tonight, enjoy yourselves, because nothing can take the sting out of the world's economic problems like watching millionaires present each other with golden statues. End quote. So let's now swivel towards the final segment of the show, the trivia segment. In each episode, there's a different trivia question that is directly and sometimes indirectly related to the movies or the people in them. And each and every listener is always invited to take a crack at it. I don't want to take the liberty of announcing both first and last names. If that makes anybody feel uncomfortable, that's why I always do first name and last initial. But if you say otherwise, then full names it is. You get a shout-out, as well as a movie-related meme sent you away with a personalized message. In the last episode, we looked at the year 2006 and the films The Queen and Little Miss Sunshine, both of which got acting Oscars for Helen Mirren and Alan Arkin, respectively. The question was, what 2012 film got Alan Arkin another Oscar nomination in the same category, Best Supporting Actor? He plays a Hollywood movie producer. And the answer is... Argo, and a big booyah to the following people who sent in their answers. Return winner Mary C., who also said, The ending, where they're running toward the plane being chased by the cops, was total bunk. They just walked calmly to the plane. Great shout out there, Mary, because you ain't wrong. <laughs> And there's also my buddy and fellow podcaster, Chris, from the podcast, The Movie Psycho. You know him from episode 42. He came on to talk about The Departed. We'll be collaborating again very soon. I'll be appearing on his show, The Movie Psycho, so stay tuned for updates on that, and go give his podcast a listen. Many thanks to both of you for continuing to listen and to play along. There's nothing I love more than interaction. So if you are a first-time listener, or if you've listened before but never actually sent in any trivia answers, then like I say every time, what's stopping you? It's fun, and I'm always happy to plug anything that other people create, whether that's a podcast, a book, music, anything. And it does not matter when you answer any trivia from any episode. Retroactive shoutouts and memes all around, no matter how much time has passed between any episode's production date and when you listen. Not exclusive here, folks. And here is this week's trivia question. After being nominated for Best Leading Actress for her role in The Help, Viola Davis would finally win her award five years later for Best Supporting Actress for what film, co-starring and directed by Denzel Washington? I'll give you a hint. It was nominated for Best Picture of 2016, which means it's one of next episode's optional titles. Just name the film. 
Send your answers over. And as always, if you have any follow-up questions or have any comments, thoughts of your own that you want to share on The Artist, Hugo, anything about any of the 2011 nominees or the Oscars show itself, hit me up on my socials. FilmBuff1974 on Twitter. The Film Group Silver Screeners on Facebook. Frank Mendoza1974 on Instagram. Or you can email silverscreenerspod at gmail.com. As for what's coming up next time with the five-year increments, we're hitting the year 2016. And guess what, my friends? Next episode is the last of this limited series of Oscar-themed ones because the Academy Awards, they'll be live two weeks from tonight, Sunday night, March 27th. So next episode is a curtain call. This curtain call of Oscar-themed flashback episodes, you vote for which one you want to hear about. The one that gets the most votes it is. We'll be looking, as we have been, at the Best Picture winner, which was Moonlight, as well as your choice of the following. Manchester by the Sea with Casey Affleck and Michelle Williams. Arrival with Amy Adams and Forrest Whitaker. La La Land with Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling. Lion with Dev Patel and Nicole Kidman. Hidden Figures with Octavia Spencer. Fences. Hacksaw Ridge. Hell or High Water. And by the way, yes, somewhere in that list is the answer to the new trivia question that I just gave you. <laughs> Keep your eyes open to my socials for the poll, and from there, it's in your hands. And that wraps up episode 44. Thank you, as always, for taking the time to listen. Be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already, and please don't hesitate to rate or review this podcast on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Good Pods, whatever platform you use. It's a great help in boosting the show's visibility, and any and all honest feedback and suggestions are always welcome. My name is Frank, wishing you good health, good weather, and good movies. And until next time, keep on screening. And I leave you now with the soothing sounds of a common soundbite that you hear in some of your favorite films, from Star Wars to MCU films to one of this year's nominated pictures, Nightmare Alley, a sound that would not be the running joke in the filmmaking industry that it is, were it not for the Warner Brothers, who invested in sound technology and took the plunge. I speak, of course, of the Wilhelm scream. Ah!